got your traditional on-premises network. You know how it works. Lots of manual configuration and tickety stuff to get the job done when something needs doing. And then you've got your cloud network. You don't worry about that one as much. The devs provision what they need automatically, hitting APIs as they go, and you keep tabs on things from a watchful distance, helping out as needed. What if you could operate your on-premises network like you do your public cloud network? What if your hybrid cloud was operationally consistent? Today in the Data Knots, sponsor Big Switch Networks makes some pretty big hybrid cloud networking announcements, and we quiz them on the why and how. At PacketPushers.net, you can find us in all of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Data Knots, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcast directory. And you can follow us at datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks, and with me is Drew Conray-Murray, a roving editor of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when he's not teasing apart technological tautologies masquerading as meaningful magic manifested by marketing minions. Chris Wall, he will be back next episode when his travel schedule lets him get back in front of the mic. And our guest today is Kyle Forster, a founder of Big Switch Networks. Kyle, welcome to Datanauts. And, and I wanted to just jump right into the show here For folks who have not heard of Big Switch Networks, can you describe your main product so that people understand what you guys do and what you're all about? Just a few sentences. Sure. So we build software for data center switching and monitoring fabrics. Our software runs on open networking switches from Dell, HP, and Whitebox switches. Think of our software. It's controller-based. We're one of the pioneers of SDN almost 10 years ago. But it's really grown a lot since the founding. We've done a lot of work on the Switch OS for reliability. We've brought in x86 DPDK appliances for packet services. And just earlier this year, we announced a line of really big appliances full of FAF, full of big flash drive for data lakes for analytics. So you're coming on the show today, you're making several big announcements, and you've sort of put this under the heading of cloud-first networking. Can you sort of give that to us in the big bullet points? I can't wait to talk about why we call it cloud-first. I think that's an area to me that's very exciting. But if you just look at our announcements, we're announcing three new products. A first, a version of our switching fabric, big cloud fabric, that's really designed for public cloud networking. We're announcing a new version of our monitoring fabric controller, big monitoring fabric, that's also designed for public cloud networking. And then a management system that works across controllers, across multiple sites, that we're calling multi-cloud director. We're also announcing something that I think is really, really critical. It's a new capability for big cloud fabric for the on-premise switching. And it's support for on-premise VPCs. This, to me, it opens up a new area of network design. It it kind of makes the rest of what we're doing make sense. And it's really what set us down this path, frankly, of building controllers for public cloud. So just to clarify that, you said on-premises VPCs, as in Amazon Web Services, that sort of a construct? As in AWS VPCs, as in Google VPCs. You know, Azure calls them VNets, but for the purpose of this conversation, I'll just call them VPCs. Got it. Okay. Okay, so just to review that, we've got a new version of the switching fabric controller, Big Cloud Fabric, designed for public cloud networking, and then a version of Big Monitoring Fabric and that controller, also designed for public cloud networking. And then I'm hearing a controller of controllers, like um, you know, a meta controller. So if you've got controllers at multiple sites, now you'll have the multi-cloud director that can give you a central point of management for all of those different sites? Correct. Okay, so that is... That is a lot. Okay. It's, well, it's what's driving all of this? I mean, <laughs> yeah. What, why now? I mean, I mean, people have been moving to cloud for a while. So, uh, you know, it sounds like I'm going to guess you guys have made the decision a while back and now you're pushed ahead and, and you're making these announcements now. Now is the right time? Yeah. So, you know, we started 
we started this work mid last year and the genesis of it was funny. It, it was one single sentence from one architect at one of our customers. And he made this comment. It wasn't even in the, in a meeting. I mean, it was in the hallway after a meeting. And he said, I, I chose big switch because it was the closest I could get to Amazon networking on premise. That sentence went viral around us. It was perspective changing. It was perspective changing for their team. It was perspective changing for our team. It was the first time we saw ourselves in that lens. We started to ask more and more questions about how our users, organizations are using Amazon, Azure, and Google. And we were really surprised at what we found. We started asking ourselves if we could do more to bring these designs on-prem. And we were also surprised how much convergent evolution had already occurred, uh, thanks to our early heritage working on a lot of private clouds. The timing was also good internally. We spent a lot of time working on our reliability in the early days. And then we spent a lot of time working on legacy protocols and legacy interoperability. And then we spent a lot of time making our automation integrations really, really strong. Our team is now a lot bigger than it was. And the timing when this first started coming up last year, the, the timing was just right for us to take on a new, really, really big engineering challenge. And this opportunity presented itself, this new perspective. So there's a couple of things here that are that, that leap to mind. So we did an interview on Data Knots with Justin Garrison, who was one of the co-authors of the book Cloud Native Infrastructure. And in that show, he made the point that for something to be cloud native, it needs to be programmatically accessible. It's all software. I mean, sure, yes, we know there's hardware down there. But from a standpoint of standing up cloud native infrastructure, what you're dealing with is programmatic interfaces, APIs, and software constructs, virtualized uh, networks, and so on, on top of that physical infrastructure. You never really see the physical stuff. It's all got to be managed by software. So when you had that architect make that quote, I chose Big Switch because it was the closest I could get to Amazon networking on-premise, is that part of what he was getting at, the ability to stand up networks in that programmatic way? Yeah, so... You know, this is a topic I'd love to talk more about. We always had this strong ethos of separating out logical networking from physical networking. I think you you mentioned it. Hey, when you both want to and need to treat a network like a software object rather than like a bunch of configs spread around boxes, you need to have this really strong design of separation of logical and physical built in from day one. So that has always been a very, very important part of our products on the switching side. On the monitoring side, it's really important that it's ubiquitous. You know, in the cloud, you don't typically get the, hey, I really complete monitoring over these 500 VMs, but these 40 VMs are left completely out in the cold because nobody put taps over there. You know, it's just not something that comes up. I think you really need to think about separating logical from physical and all the software that's built on top of that benchmark. And then on the monitoring side, really think about ubiquitous monitoring. It has to be very, very complete and build up from there. Do you have a sense of what your customer is really talking about when he was saying, I, I wish it was it was the closest to an Amazon VPC? Is that because he liked Amazon's operational model for him as a networking engineer? Is it because he liked the way that he, you know, he could just sort of set up a structure for his devs to go off and play with and not have to worry about the networking constructs underneath? Can you tease out a little bit more what it was about that VPC model that he wanted to bring on-premises? Sure. The biggest thing that he liked about the VPC model was that you could have a clean, an evolution of roles and responsibilities. And I, there's a lot to unpack there that I think is worth talking about. But instead of saying, hey, the networking team is responsible for dragging VLANs around the room, and we always need to wait for change windows. So we're kind of always in this mode of almost continuously failing these DevOps teams that desperately want to move faster and faster and faster. 
He had this continuous failure. That's that's a lot different from CICD, right? <laughs> exactly. And you know, we all see it. We all know it. You know, it's it's a thing that's really plaguing our industry and part of our zeitgeist at the moment. I think his view was very, very different. It led us to think differently. This idea that hey, the networking team should be the the bastion of safety and security and reliability for the organization, and so should certainly manage the logical, sorry, the the physical network underneath. But he was really enamored with this idea of, hey, I need to create a safe way to create networks that I can delegate to other teams. You know, delegated administration is a, I think is a is a good, it's a cute name, but is a good name for it. He had this vision to say, hey, I have DevOps teams that are perfectly ready, willing, and capable to do basic subnet configuration, to do basic routes configuration. They certainly want to do their own ACL configuration. But I can't just give them accounts to every switch in the data center. I mean, that would be foolhardy just chasing down the accidents mm-hmm. never mind the routing loops that could get created is just a recipe for disaster from our kind of early heritage we had this idea of a separation of logical and physical network and a physical network that could be administered by one team in a highly reliable way but a logical network that we've evolved to vpcs that's safe to delegate there are a lot of requirements under there right you need to safely handle overlapping IP address spaces. You need to be very, very, very clever about the way that you handle VLAN tags. You need to be very clever about not exposing the physical location or the physical box in the network to the end user of the VPC yet at the same time knowing where all of their VMs uh, or, you know, in the case of bare metal, knowing where their bare metal servers actually sit. So there's a lot of cleverness that sits underneath there and we can double click on that area as we go in the show. You know, but I think the core thing that he really liked was this idea of you know, hey, this you know, team number one can have a VPC, team number two can have a t- VPC, team number three can have a VPC. And then as soon as those VPCs need to connect to something really sensitive, like the router of the pod, you know, like any of their shared services that they could potentially break down, then they need to do VPC peering with my VPC. It's exactly the model that we see a lot of organizations going down in cloud. But he had this very sound idea that I want to create this exact same model on-prem. And that's what got him enamored with this idea of creating VPCs on-prem, and that's really what led him to Big Switch. So what strikes me about the start of this conversation is that the value of the cloud was always, here's a pool of resources, you just go and use it, and it's somebody else's worrying about the underlying infrastructure. Now, Big Switch is taking this notion and bringing it down onto the premises, which I think is a great idea. The question is, what do they do about because now it's actually your infrastructure that you have to manage. So I'm, I'm curious to see what they're going to bring to that underlay aspect of it. But I, I like the idea in general. Uh, the, the takeaway that I had was this uh, idea that end users are really driving vendor products in some cases. So Kyle made the point that it was a comment from uh, a network architect, almost a passing comment that really riveted them and, and, and put them down this road. Um, he used Big switch because it was the closest he could get to Amazon networking on premises. The takeaway for me there is that if you're an end user and you're not ever talking to your vendor about the product, how it works, how you need for it to work, what your business requires, then you're missing an opportunity to influence what is coming down the line. So share your concerns, share your interests, share your feedback with your vendors, let them know. Uh, let them know the good stuff and uh, let them know the bad. Typically, we're really good about letting them know the bad stuff, but not so much the good stuff. But <laughs> but let them know all of those things that are making it easier for you to deliver the technology that your business needs. And you might even start a whole new product line. 
Okay, so we got some background on the, the big announcements and the news that's coming out. Let's dive a little bit more into this big cloud fabric, enterprise cloud, on-prem VPC. That's that's the big announcement coming out of here. Are you working with Amazon on this or just sort of creating an Amazon VPC clone inside the data center? How does this all work? Sure. So Amazon has VPCs. Google has VPCs. I think I mentioned earlier, Azure has VNets. But for the sake of this show, let, let, let's just call them VPCs. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look closely, the object model for all three are slightly different. But the way they're used in practice are extremely similar. We have to build on these models because there are a couple of things that we have to worry about on-prem that they don't have to worry about. On their end, they only need to worry about one kind of vSwitch and on one vSwitch control plane that they have complete control over. Mm-hmm. On-prem, our users run vSwitches from VMware, from Nutanix, from Red Hat. They run all kinds of different container vSwitches. They run bare metal servers where there are no vSwitches at all. They run all kinds of other appliances. So we needed to design a system that works when our users really want vSwitch level integration and when they don't and still provide the VPC abstraction. We also had to design something that works really well when our users don't want to integrate their automation with other systems. And when they do, it's really easy to assume, hey, if you can control a network through vCenter, gosh, everybody would want it. And it turns out it's pretty heterogeneous. And even we have some organizations that trust some of their vAdmins and don't trust others. You know, So we had to deal with, I think, a much more heterogeneous environment than a public cloud, but we still had to make the VPC construct work really well. And we still had to make it feel like something that if you used Amazon VPCs, then using this, it's the exact same application layout, an awful lot of the same tooling. If you use Google VPCs, it's the same. If you use Azure VPCs, you'd spot this as being the same. So the deltas between them, to be totally honest, they're, they're really in the noise. I mean, we even find these across public clouds. Once you spin up one kind of VPC, the others are quick to pick up and you would generally roll your application out the exact same way across the three majors. So we really wanted to make these enterprise on-prem VPCs act the same way. So just to clarify that then, some folks, just to use an analogy tied to storage, some folks will use S3 and imitate S3 calls. And so you're actually doing the same the same call, not the same kind of call, but the same call you would do against an Amazon S3 bucket, you would do against whatever the other S3 provider is. Did you clone the API so that I'm making the same API calls as I would against AWS? Or is it like a parallel? Like you're going to end up with the same end result, but it's a, I'm making different calls against the, uh, the big switch controller to end up with this similar result. You know, we started with a handful of customer application deployments and worked backwards from there to figure out what were the Amazon calls that we needed to support rather than starting from a feature list forward. We really wanted to make sure we got the big stuff right on day one. So here's a good example. We had a really big internal debate. You know, EC2 classic designs relied very heavily on, on NAT as, and private IP address space as a best practice. AWS VPCs brought that along along with the NAT gateway and what I think was an unintended consequence of really relying frequently on both a default route table and additional route tables per VPC. This is something, at least the users that we were working with as design partners, it wasn't an area that they liked and it's not an area that they wanted to use. So we didn't really see that as a priority for on-premise VPCs. So we punted on that one for now. Here's another good example. And look, this may be really deep in the weeds, but it's the concept of an origination tag. This took us a few tries to recognize just how important it was and how to get it right. Public cloud systems, they don't really have formal parts of the data model, at least across the major three, to tell you where a VPC came from in a highly automated system. 
it's not to say it can't be done. They're, they have plenty of ways to do it. They have you know really nice ways of doing key value attributes. Came from as in as in the orchestration system that made the original uh, call to to spin it up, whatever it was. Exactly. Like, hey, which cloud formation template, which Terraform template happened to be the genesis of this particular VPC? Which system calling which REST API happened to be the genesis of this thing? You know, you can use key value attributes, you can use naming conventions, but they don't have a really hardened, you know, 100% consistent way that this is done. We put in this concept of an origination tag. It's really just a string and it's used by various automation systems. So think of vCenter, think Nutanix, think OpenStack. And it sits on any key stands in the config, VPCs being the most important. It can do things like shove in the ID of the vCenter cluster that originated the API call to create this particular VPC. I know this is in the weeds and it sounds really subtle, but when you want to do very, very high reliability in the face of failover and upgrades, this tells you that the system of record was not actually the controller itself. The system of record sat somewhere else. And this turns out to be really, really, really important when you have an uncertain state situation in an upgrade or in a failover. Maybe I'm deep in the weeds, but at least for on-prem VPCs, this turned out to be a, a pretty important little innovation. Well, it's a good illustration of what I think your your main point here is. So it's not that what Big Switch has created here is an exact duplicate of Amazon VPCs. It is a selection of the use cases and feature sets that customers are actually using and what they can apply on-prem with some additional features like origination tags that are going to be helpful as you begin to deploy cloud-like constructs in your local data center, or I say cloud-like, actually cloud. It just happens to be uh, private instead of public cloud in this scenario. Am I I understanding that about right? Yeah, I think if you look across Amazon, Azure, and Google, our goal is to be no different than, it's not that have those three and have on-prem VPCs be wildly different. It's you have those three and this would be a fourth that would be very, very normal. Mm. I think one thing that we found, especially across users who are, who have branched out of you know, real heavy you know, mission-critical use of more than one public cloud, what we found is that they tend to think of application rollout, application segmentation, and roles and responsibilities as the same across all three. But there's some applications that do have a couple of tweaks that really do work better on Azure, and there's some particular applications whose load is really, really well-suited for Google. And so we do actually wind up finding, well, you kind of really need to match against the roles and responsibilities. You need to match across a lot of the tool chains because everybody wants the same tool chain across all three. You do find people generally exploit the you know, specific advantages of different public clouds. And we thought that their on-prem data center should act the same way. You know, hey, there's a common object model. Hey, there's common workflows. Hey, there are common roles and responsibilities. But you probably have a couple specific capabilities that your on-prem data center can do that public clouds can't. And we should make sure it doesn't become a least common denominator type of thing but rather uh, yeah, we can exploit the advantages type of thing. So, and just to be clear, if I was to go into the dashboard for this big switch product, the idea isn't that it's going to mimic exactly what it would look like if I was doing some networking work in Amazon, but this underlying operational model and the constructs are similar. Exactly. If you went to the Amazon dashboard, the Azure dashboard, and then this dashboard, you'd say, okay, even for the exact same application, you say, okay, wow, I can see consistency across the three. Mm-hmm. But you know, Azure and Amazon have small deltas and we would have small deltas as well. Okay. but And you've also accounted for some things that because I'm running 
this infrastructure on my premises. I need to be able to to see where packets are going. I need to be able to troubleshoot. You're adding things like origination tag to give that network operator more insight into what's happening in their own environment that I wouldn't necessarily get from Amazon. Exactly. So there's the logical view that Amazon runs internally, but they don't exactly. Sorry, there's a logical view that Amazon exposes and there's a logical view here that this would expose. There's the physical view that Amazon certainly does not expose to end users. Right. But in this particular case, there's a physical view that we absolutely need to expose, you know, to (laughs) certain types. But then beyond that, also the, you know, the automation cases are a little bit different. On-prem, people aren't using the Amazon dashboard. On-prem, we haven't seen folks use CloudFormation templates yet, though I do think that that I do think that that will happen fairly soon. On-prem, you really need to think about vCenter integration. On-prem, you really need to think about Nutanix integration. On-prem, you really need to think about Kubernetes and Mesos integration. You need to think about Nutanix Prism integration. So the integrations and the automations are a little slightly different, which which leads to into just different parts of the object model that are more important than others. Okay. So maybe to switch gears a little bit, Whenever you're talking about cloud, people like to talk about hybrid cloud, about having workloads on-premises, also having workloads in the cloud, and whether they're connected or not, looking for that unified operational model. So do I get a unified view of hybrid cloud where I can see a local VCP I've created on-premises and cloud VPCs? Can I get that all in one place? So this is exactly what we stumbled into during the work that led up to, to BCF Public Cloud. We had always had some idea for a sort of director that would work across on-prem controllers. You know, and frankly, over the last few years, our largest users are now up to three and 400 controllers spread across many, many sites. However, it was this idea of BCF in the public cloud for VPC in, in public cloud control, as well as VPCs on-premise, mm-hmm. that suddenly made this idea of this multi-cloud director. It suddenly made sense at any scale. You could have a single pod on-premise and workloads running on a single availability zone. And suddenly multi-cloud director, even at that scale, at two controllers, two controller clusters, I should say, you made a ton of sense. So that's suddenly created the impetus, you know, really, really to me, put the fuel on the fire for getting going on the multi-cloud director work that we had sketched out on the whiteboard a bunch of times that we had people who desperately wanted to build. Suddenly, instead of this really just being our massive, massive scale users, multi-cloud director became very relevant to anybody that's running a workload on Amazon and that is 100% of our user base. So it's not just for the folks who have X hundred number of controllers out there. You're saying if you've got two, three, you can still get value out of multi-cloud director. I mean, we finally found a, a product that could work all the way to the largest telcos that we serve down to I mean, even the smallest school district that we serve is running both pods on-premise as well as, uh, as, well as workloads on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And when we found, hey, we had a product that could actually work across the entire base, we knew we had something. Talk to us about security a little bit. How do I control who can do what in my big cloud fabric, uh, VPC? Amazon's got IAM for security. We've talked about that on Datanauts in a number of episodes. Is the security model something like IAM or something different? The most common model we had designed for on-prem is that the networking team creates a VPC, but then it's a vAdmin, it's a Nutanix admin, it's a container DevOps person, it's an OpenStack project admin that takes it from there to create the subnets, to create ACLs that suit their the segmentation needs of their application. So when on-prem, that's really the common case, much more than cloud formation templates, for example. When we know that's the common case, we could get away with a much simpler user account to VPC mapping. 
it's a tiny subset of the generality of Amazon IAM roles, but it's a lot easier to troubleshoot. And at least with the organizations we work with as design partners, we wanted something that fits very cleanly into the way that they're using Amazon IAM roles. So we wanted something that translates into their current IAM role setup, but the massive generality of IAM roles also makes them a little tricky operationally to troubleshoot when things go wrong. This is an area where I think we'll see if we need to generalize this out and support the general IAM role functionality or if this limited subset is plenty. And I just don't know. I think we'll know a lot more over the next year. No, I'm not surprised that you took it that direction. Just one of the reasons it's come up on data not so many times is just the difficulty of dealing with IAM, troubleshooting things when they're going wrong, not giving people more permissions than they need while at the same time giving them what they do actually need. And there's so much complexity there that it's a it's a big topic. So keeping it simple at first and then expanding as user needs grow makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, frankly, as I've worked through both personal projects and demos for this, I, I've just lost too many Saturday afternoons troubleshooting. I am rolling to want to do that in V1. <laughs> but you're saying first day you can roll in and sort of have the kind of basic roles and controls that you'd assume coming out of the box so that a network administrator or network operator feels confident that a dev isn't going to go wild. Uh, exactly. They shouldn't. Exactly. Exactly. So that, you know, the, so to make sure our real case was to make sure hey, this V admin doesn't absolutely crush something that the Nutanix admin is setting up at, at the same time. And so we were able to get that pretty easily and quickly. And bring it back to, to hybrid clouds again for a second. I'm curious if you're seeing or how you're seeing customers are they actually splitting workloads between on-premises and in the public cloud? And if so, what stays on-prem, what goes up in the cloud? This is just an area where, like I said, in the last year of talking to our users and the people who are using our stuff and administrating their organizations, public cloud networks, as well as hey, somebody else in the same organization is, is doing the administration work. I got to say, this is an area where it feels like the vendor chatter and at least our user base are just on completely different planes of existence. <laughs> yeah. What? You're saying the vendors are <laughs> talking about things their customers aren't even thinking about yet? Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, I mean, look, a, a pretty big percentage of our customer base is sort of global 2000 types of organizations. And the apps that we see in that group running on public cloud are primarily apps where all the software was written in-house. Mm-hmm. There are also apps that have relatively less audit and compliance overhead. The really early software that was clearly written for the in-house DevOps crew, and that's already running in the cloud. But I think viewing app by app in isolation is not, it's not quite the right mental model because an awful lot of these apps still need access back on-prem for different databases that they're using as part of the overall application. If I think of these large enterprise apps really being a series of microservices, Hey, sure, some of the microservices may be running in the cloud, but some of the microservices that are wrapping key databases may be running on-prem. Now, we see typically microservices running in a single location, or maybe that microservice is running in a DR pair of locations, or maybe the really, really advanced ones, a microservice in an application is running on a geo-distributed set of locations. And an app may have many microservices, but geo-distributed programming is really, really hard. And... <laughs> It's hard to get right. Practicality wins. So for the most part, unless it's really needed, we see most microservices existing in a location, whether that be an on-prem data center or a pair of data centers or a cloud region, you know, sometimes multi-AZs in a cloud region. 
every once in a while multi-regions. But the app itself may require this coordination of many microservices. So if you look at the app level, it looks very distributed. But if you look at the services underneath, they're not. Hmm. You know, Frank, after years of like talk about cloud bursting for web server capacity in response to, you know, hey, it's the Super Bowl. Hey, we need, you know, 10,000 new web servers. We right. just burst the whole thing in the cloud. Other than one single conversation in the last year, we've just never seen users who care about that. Yeah, you just you anticipated my question. That's where I was headed. So you know, the cloud bursting thing, moving or or even migrating workloads from public to private or private to public, it seems like that doesn't happen all that often. I mean, data gravity alone makes it pretty impractical. Right. Now, are there a hundred and one things that we can do so that when you do want to move a workload from public to private, it's not a six month engineering project? Yeah, there's a ton that we can do there. Simply supporting VPCs on-prem, supporting overlapping IP address spaces, supporting a lot of the same core primitives so that you can take a template from on-prem and plop it up in the cloud. There's a lot that we can do so it's not a six-month or a 12-month engineering project. But is is the real need to click a button to move a workload? I mean, really? I I don't know. I haven't below the CIO level. Like We haven't really seen that many folks care too much about that. Now, this doesn't include dev work and QA work and a lot of capacity for simulations, but this is predictable demand. You know, this isn't, hey, it's the middle of the Super Bowl and we need 10,000 web servers. Okay, Kyle, let's assume that a typical big cloud fabric enterprise cloud deployment, let's let's assume that that's a pod. I'm kind of imagining that in my mind. That makes sense to me as a typical way to do it. So, So when that pod is stood up, are there any special considerations to connect it with the rest of the on-premises network? This is a great question and is it okay if i take a really long-winded answer go for it (laughs) yeah there's a lot of innovation here that i think that our team has done that i'm really proud of we chose a design path first where the physical and logical network are really separate i mean this is what attracted me to sdn 10 years ago when it was just a a couple university research teams and i started sitting in with a stanford crew it's also what i think the public cloud folks got really right to the physical network you know, in those very, very early days to make these big innovations work, we had to choose a metaphor that really made sense to every network engineer out there. So Big Cloud Fabric, is a, it's a leaf spine cloth that looks like one big switch. This fundamentally gives the company its name. The controllers act just like soups. The spine switches act just like a backplane. The leaf switches act just like line cards. You know, where does BGP come out? Where does CLI go in? It's the soup. You know, where, when you have a big chassis, you roll it off the loading dock, you, you know, you plug it into your data center core router via a line card. You could lag a VLAN into the line card if you like. You can just treat the whole thing like one big chassis. And to be honest, plenty of our users stop there. And they just use it like a big scale-out chassis. It's a chassis that could have two line cards. It's a chassis that could have 100 line cards. Plenty of them just stop there. However, it's the VPC side that gets me really excited. On the VPC side, our recommended design comes from work that we saw in cloud users. We recommend a system VPC. You know, some people call it a transit VPC that manages all the inter-VPC logical communication. I would say every one of our, every one of the organizations that we work with that aren't buried in technical debt from cloud work they did four or five years ago are all migrating to this type of transit VPC, system VPC design. You know, on-prem, we recommend an external VPC that wraps all the communication to the router outside of the pod. That's for safety. As long as they aren't peered with a system VPC, application VPCs can be safely delegated to any DevOps dude out there. As long as they're not peered, 
there is just no way that somebody with VPC level access could take down the network. You know, they, they really can't do damage to the overall system. I think this is part of why public cloud networking is so agile because there are these really important constructs that you can give and you say, look, it's risk-free. You don't have to check with me. There's nothing you can do that's going to screw anything up. And when you're done, let me know. We'll walk together through an audit. We'll make sure that everything's clean. And when it is clean, we'll peer our VPCs. You know, Even if you're an application owner and I'm the networking team, I own the system VPC. As soon as you're ready, we do a walkthrough and we'll turn on peering. At that point, you know, there is stuff that you could break. You are connecting to other VPCs. What are the other VPCs to which you need access? What are the external communications to which you need access? What are the critical external services that you need? You know, you've probably already been working for months and you've completely unblocked the entire DevOps crew on your app team that you're working with. So I think that this is a, you know, both on the physical side, hey, it's just one big chassis, plug it in. It acts like one big chassis, show run. It looks awfully familiar. That was really important, I think, to our early success. And then this concept of, hey, let's use the best public cloud designs that we're seeing out there and bring those on-prem in this VPC form. I I think that to us is the next big chapter. Uh, You said something that really struck me, which was, hey, here's your VPC. There's there's no no possible way you can blow anything up. Go crazy. Do what you want. And when it's finally ready and you think you want to go to production, then we're going to peer you into the system VPC or a transit VPC and, uh, and, it, and therefore it's all safe. So your DevOps folks can do what they need to do to get their system up and running. That really hit me because there is so often a fear of if I do the wrong thing, I'm going to impact the rest of the world and possibly cause downtime to the business. And so there can be caution or, or, or people are scared to do anything unless they know it's a very self-contained uh, lab environment where, they have that that freedom that comes with that sort of mindset, and you've got the same thing here with this uh, this VPN, uh, VPC construct on premises. I got a chuckle out of just <laughs> the idea that sometimes what marketing is coming up with and what the messaging that we hear from marketing departments in uh, industry news and so on is so different than the way customers are actually using and consuming technology. So we go through these waves of, oh, everybody's going to be doing this, or everybody's going to be doing that, or everybody's doing the other thing. And we're all talking to each other that actually use the stuff and go, nope, not not really a thing. And uh, and sure enough, not, not really a thing is uh, so often the case. So it was a little bit, it was refreshing to hear Big Switch talking about we design things based on what our customer feedback is and what they're actually doing and needing, not um, you know all this other random stuff that we thought we could marketize into some kind of a product. Uh, Drew, what uh, grabbed your attention? My takeaway is also a little bit about messaging. Lots of enterprise vendors are talking to us about hybrid cloud. Everybody has a hybrid cloud story. They're all taking different routes to get there, but they all sort of coalesce around the same concept, a more unified operating model, the tools and processes that you're going to use on-prem are essentially the same or similar to what you're using in cloud. And it feels like Big Switch is kind of taking this to its logical conclusion. Let's emulate the cloud as operationally as possible, as closely as possible, and then bring that back on-premises. I think they sort of like uh, did a little judo flip here, and that's an interesting approach. Got a sense of these announcements. We we dove in on some of the details of what we're actually getting with the Big Cloud Fabric Enterprise Cloud, the on-premises stuff. 
but I want to get into some more of more of the operational side. So if I've got this product in house, what's it? How is it impacting my life day to day and the lives of the people that I work with? One question: monitoring. So I've got VPC constructs in my local data center now. How can I tell what data flows are going where? How, how deeply does Big Cloud Fabric understand where my data is going? Sure, Big Cloud Fabric Enterprise Cloud. This is the on-prem switching fabric itself has an built-in analytics stack that should be pretty reminiscent of AWS CloudWatch, at least all the networking stats that come out of CloudWatch. Think of something like grabbing all of the packet counters across every single interface and storing it in a data lake that's capable of a couple of weeks of history and then correlating it with any configuration changes, whether they were CLI or GUI or API, whatever it is, with a Kibana stack on top to visualize the whole set. So it's a pretty good starting point, just like AWS CloudWatch. I mean, you kind of click one button and it turns on. Now, big monitoring fabric enterprise, the the on-prem version, we built to integrate with legacy networks. So not big switch networks, legacy Cisco networks, legacy Juniper networks, legacy Arista networks, to do something that looks a little bit more like VPC flow log. If you look at VPC flow log, think it's like a one-to-one net flow across every single IP address in the organization. It's incredibly powerful. It's powerful, you know, if, at first glance, it looks like NetFlow, but then if you look at how it's used, when it's 100% coverage and when the stuff is stored for weeks, the way it's used is just much more sophisticated. Yeah, and, and for those of you folks listening to this who, where networking is not your primary silo, maybe you haven't gotten into this, but it's pretty common in a lot of particularly high-throughput data centers where you don't have every single flow endpoint to endpoint being tracked, you have sampled net flow where the switch in question is pushing up a sampling of net flow data. So you get an approximate idea of what's going through, you know, enough that you can make reasonable decisions, but you, you just lack granularity. And so Kyle, to speak to your point here, we're talking about every single flow being tracked in, in, uh, in the context of this conversation. Yeah. You know, when you get sampled net flow, I think it's useful for, for capacity planning. It's useful for things like, hey, who's the top talker? But when you get one-to-one across every IP address, you get to say, okay, between these two IP addresses, what happened at 5.47 a.m. yesterday? Because I saw something else. You know, it's just a level of sophistication that you can do in the cloud that people are not accustomed to being able to do on-premise. And BMF was built in many ways to bring this on-prem. And again, that's that's a second second product. So we've got big cloud fabric, which is the the switches that we were talking about that uh, deliver the networking, and then big monitoring fabric, which would be somewhat like competing products that are that are would be called packet brokers, where you're you're taking data from the network and sending it out to various tools to do analysis and so on. Exactly. Okay. Big monitoring fabric it it connects to taps and to span ports yeah either on big cloud fabric and we have some integrations there but also on any legacy network i think thanks to rich groves so rich was a network architect at microsoft at the time and i give him full credit for the one who actually came up with the idea for the product it started life as a scale-out network packet broker it started life as a scale-out version of gigamon it didn't take our dev team long to finish that roadmap i mean we got to feature parity there very very quickly but then they rapidly extended the software out to x86 appliances to help in packet processing and packet analytics that switching ASICs just can't, can't do and, and switching CPUs can't do it anywhere near reasonable throughput. 
so we have these x86 appliances. We even did a high performance port of the eBPF JIT to user space so that it could leverage DPDK. I, I think we were the first company, that, at least that we know of, that shipped DPDK in a commercial product. It lets us do a lot of the more arcane packet masking and rewriting functions that are required for telco uh, NPB use cases. Uh, but it also lends itself to surprisingly high performance deep packet inspection for analytics. So we can do analysis deep into the HTTP header. Early this year, we announced the analytics node for flow analytic storage. We announced the packet recorder node for actual PCAP storage. There's a lot more that we can do there, both with BCF traffic and with legacy network traffic coming off fan ports and taps. But I'm going off topic here. We have a bunch of demo videos online. Okay, so so I'm hearing there's two different things here. So one is, you know, the the initial question was just trying to figure out where my data is going now that I've got this big cloud fabric giving me an enterprise cloud. So big cloud fabric itself, I'm just reviewing what you you said here. That gives me one-to-one netflow record accounting where I can see every flow going through that fabric and know every IP address and where all it went and I've got weeks worth of data sitting out there that I can keep up with that information. And then if I want to do deeper analytics, I there is a separate product here in addition to Big Cloud Fabric that's available to me. I've got Big Monitoring Fabric that can give me the layer 7 inspections and so on because you've got the uh, the x86 boxes that that can process at very high speed because they're um they're processing via DPDK. That I think I think I got the story right. Correct me if I'm wrong. I like to draw the analogy that BCF's analytics stack looks a lot like Amazon CloudWatch and how that's used in practice. Big Monitoring Fabric, the separate product, uh, looks a lot like FlowLog and how that's used in practice. Okay. So if you're gathering all this network metadata, is it just something that the network operations team uses or can I share this with other folks in the enterprise that might want to take a look at it for any reason? <laughs> Drew, sharing is caring here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. I think it's because BMF started life as a network packet broker. And while it's does kind of more and more now, and I think in the future, it's that'll just be a feature. Uh, in network packet broker land, especially at scale, the trend in the market is to have a centralized infrastructure, sometimes a central infrastructure team mm-hmm. that provides packet streams as a service to any team that wants out-of-band packets. So IDS teams, capacity planning teams, infrastructure troubleshooting teams. I would say most of the features of BMF were built with this as a service mentality in mind because at scale packet brokers, that's how things start with packet streams. And as we've built more and more on top of that, you know, more and more uh, you know, flow metadata storage, more and more flow metadata analysis, as we look forward into a lot of the predictive analytics that we're working on now, I think that you know, as a service mentality has threaded itself all the way through the history of the product, uh, the present of the product in the future. And you're also saying that the network team can say, hey, security, hey, capacity planning teams, I've got this valuable information feed that we can share with you if you're interested, if you want to, for whatever reason, get a look into what's going on. And that sort of extends the value to the organization of the network operations team as well. Absolutely. With a lot of our users on, I mean, I'd say the majority of our BMF users, it's really neat because you see these teams go from being a very reactive team to saying, hey, here's a new internal product. Check it out. You know, network analytics as an internal product for other people to use. Mm -hmm. I think that's something neat. And it sort of changes, it changes the dialogue in between networking teams and the teams they serve. Which also, (laughs) Ethan, fits with the data and automation and breaking down those silos that tend to exist in organizations. You got it. Hmm. 
all right, Kyle. Now I'm going to ask you a kind of a big question here about operations. So with traditional networks, we, we are used to our CLI and lots of manual configuration happening in the network silo. And, and people that listen to data knots in the other silo have often shared their pity and so on for, for us poor people in networking and how we do things. But uh, and a lot of times, even when we automate, and we've talked about this somewhat too, there's often just a, the, the automation starts out as merely a replication of manual processes, and it's still kind of siloed. But Kyle, you describe uh, BCFEC as delegated administration. This is something that we talked about uh, before the show as we were prepping for it. Can, can you explain this idea of, of delegated administration? Sure. This is something that really gets me out of bed in the morning, and the. Uh... I think, like you said, we're for for people that come from other silos and are shocked to find, you know, hey, legacy networking, the API is CLI over XML over REST. You know, <laughs> we can do much, much, much better here when we follow the Amazon model. Uh, but first, hey, look, my my team would kill me if I didn't, you know, stay true to our roots in the networking silo. You can always just use BCF like one big chassis switch if you don't want to step into the Amazon style operations you can still just use it the same way that we've been using switching for years. This is, after all, where the company gets its name. It's totally legitimate to stop there. And some of our largest users stop there for their entire BCF deployment for years, or some even stop there for 99% of the workloads on their BCF deployment. It's not an either or. You can have one big switch that happens to carve out a small part of it for VPC. But it's the next step through these VPCs, the delegated administration step, that I think is the more exciting thing as we think about how our roles as networking professionals are going to evolve over the next decade. I think we just need to think very differently about the roles and responsibilities that we take on if we want to stay relevant in a cloud-dominated world. Delegated administration is the start. We can't have every DevOps person, every time they need something from networking, be halted on a maintenance window and a trouble ticket. And then when those get resolved, you know, somebody does that twice and they're going to find ways to take matters into their own hands. You know, with my own journey now, almost almost 10 years into this, I, I don't think that there's any delegated administration model in networking if you can't separate the logical from the physical. It's such a cornerstone. And I know that's really, really abstract. But just to make it more concrete, this is where VPCs are so different from VLANs and VRFs in practice, even if the day in the life of a packet looks kind of the same on the surface. Think about trying to delegate config control to a non-networking but infrastructure savvy colleague to split his or her applications into subnets, create routes, create ACLs. You know, this is an area where your colleague, the app owner, is they know their app so much better, they can be much more successful in this. It's not like the syntax or the concepts between subnets, routes, and ACLs is hard. But if you give your colleague a login to a whole bunch of boxes, they would have to know a lot about the topology. They'd have to know about the physical location of their workload. They'd have to know about the address space, not only their workload, but the workloads around them. They need to know the VLAN numbering space and use by their neighbors. I mean, the chance of an accidental config stomping is massive, and let alone the incredible risk that there's going to be some loop created that takes down the network. Mm. If you try to do a VLAN or a VRF and say, hey, let's delegate administration of this VRF out to somebody else, you're not going to get there without a lot of homegrown software. I think VPCs think through a lot of these issues in very subtle ways. You absolutely need to support overlapping IP address ranges. You absolutely need to support fully distributed route tables. This is a function. Where's the router? The router's everywhere. Fully distributed ACL tables. Where does the ACL get processed? As soon as the packet ingresses. 
with enterprise VPCs, you have to do some really careful work around VLAN, VXLAN tags. You know, that's kind of the social contract back and forth between the V switch and the and the leaf switch. So there's a, a lot of agility that's required there under the hood. We don't have time to go into all that in detail, but the number of requirements that a network fabric has to support to make VPCs really simple, to make delegated administration really simple while still safe and while still something that you could change outside of any maintenance window, the list of things that you have to support from the underlying fabric is actually quite long. So from there, that's not all. Right? There's all this packet handling that happens under the hood. There's all this you know, way that you use the headers that happens under the hood. But then if you look at, in practice, the end user design that's required to make these things work, you really need a, a transit VPC or you know, we call it a system VPC style design that makes this really easy transition from the risk-free dev time. Hey, do whatever you need to do in your VPC. Play around with it. Delete the thing five times. You, know, you need to have a really smooth transition from there all the way to, okay, now I'm giving you access to routers to the rest of the data center. Okay, now I may be giving you access, you know, God forbid, to the public internet. You know, now I'm giving you access to a whole bunch of sensitive areas and to other VPCs that may have been built to all kinds of different standards. So I think that's where the system VPC style design is something that I think end users in the cloud have already embraced. And that's an area that I think we need to think very deeply about on-premise because I just think it's, frankly, it's sort of the right way to think about how organizations are going to look here in, uh, in two, three, four, five years. Then last thing that you need to do is, you know, just saying, hey, I have a VPC for you. Here you go. Here's like login to networking style CLI. I, I just don't think that's good enough. I don't think it's anywhere near good enough. I think when you think about delegated administration and working outside of, you know, having one foot in the network silo, but but serving people who are outside of it, you need to meet your users in the tools where they where they play today. In cloud, that means networking config. You know, VPC config in the cloud shows up in CloudFormation and Terraform intermingled with all of the other infrastructure required by an app. On-prem, that means VPCs appearing as distributed vSwitches in vCenter, as Neutron Networks in OpenStack, as Nutanix Networks in Prism, or as PodNets in Kube. You know, it's not only that they need to appear, but then they need to always stay in sync and maintaining state there despite failure events on either side, across upgrades on either side. That takes some, some really deep thinking. So I think just to some, if you look at, you know, it's a long story, but if you look at delegated administration, hey, you have to, at least for our side, building the fabric as a, as a product, there's a lot of fancy footwork we need to do around how we handle, you know, packet headers and some of the interesting areas that we support there. And end user designs, you know, our, our users really, to make this really, really work, they think de- deeply about transit VPCs that they're doing in the cloud and, and making that practice on-prem. And then when they actually have the delegated VPC on-prem that's ready to be moved over, you, know, you need to make it show up in the vCenter GUI. You need to make it show up in the Prism GUI. Um, you can just show up as one of the kube commands. So it's a long story, but I do think that our industry has this really interesting ride ahead where networking professionals are going to think differently about where the roles and responsibilities sit. And when we can delegate administration for the app VPCs, it's going to buy us all the time that we need, just the time and the bandwidth and the human capacity to play a much larger role in thinking about what the right thing is to do in the transit VPC or, or playing a consultative role to our app owners who are segmenting their applications. And I think it's stronger than dragging VLANs around the room. Yeah. And, and it goes back to what you said when you, when you opened up this bit, which was, 
you can't have the networking silo holding up the works because there's a ticket you got to submit and it's going to be days or, or weeks to be able to create whatever it is that's required to deploy an application. That's that's nuts. We're, the world's moved beyond that now. And uh, the you know, Big Cloud Fabric is one example here of how, of how to get beyond that by unifying the networking portion of provisioning with everything else that's being provisioned. I think there's just a slightly different set of roles and responsibilities here for our industry that's that we're going to evolve to over the next couple of years because frankly just because it's better we're going to serve our internal customers better when we do this and i'm excited about being part of that part of that transition so one of the big ideas i'm getting here with this on-premises vpc networking is the notion of operational consistency that the way i do things on-premises is going to be very similar to the way i'm doing things in the cloud does that mean that the tooling the automation i'm using against my aws in in, in the public cloud is also going to work with Big Cloud Fabric? You know, short answer is we're getting there. We prioritize vCenter, Nutanix, OpenStack, Kubernetes, and Mesos integrations with enterprise VPCs ahead of cloud formation for now. We'll see where this takes us. I'm pretty excited about the storage side and the compute side coming to a point where cloud formation can work on-prem. Certainly already with OpenStack, we see Terraform. Mm. Uh, but I think the more general form is going to... Let's just say we're looking at the compute evolution and we're looking at the storage evolution very 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 closely because i think just doing the networking part alone of cloud formation it adds some value but not as much as as the others so the others were an obvious first step Um, so the second step will come it just needs to come along with with compute and storage at the right time Mm -hmm. kyle we've talked about a a lot here with uh with the announcements and uh, what you're releasing with uh, big cloud fabric enterprise cloud what's on the roadmap what is coming up next in the next few months Ethan, we just announced our third, fourth, and fifth products this year. Is that not enough? <laughs> I want more. I always want more. Give us more. <laughs> what have you done for me lately? I'm joking. So the public cloud big monitoring fabric is going to be the first off the line. That's in beta now and it'll GA late summer. Enterprise VPCs are coming in phases. The first phase happening in the next release, and every release will have a little bit of goodness on that. The first internal multi-cloud director release just got into the hands of our SE team two weeks ago. I've been playing with it in our SE lab. Uh, it goes to beta users from there with a few, you know, and after a few iterations with beta users, then it'll go GA. Tactically, you can tell I've brought up AWS quite a bit, but we're quite far along now with users who are much heavier on Azure and Google. So, you know, there's some obvious moves there. There are also some big moves for routing and tunnel termination coming on the roadmaps of a few of these big providers some which announced, some not yet announced. And that's something that, you know, given our sort of role here, we're staying very, very close to because I think that's going to reshuffle the deck on how people think about tunnel termination and even a lot of just basic transit VPC routing here over the next couple of months. But more on that as those go public in, the, in what would hopefully be the next episode. All right. Well, Kyle Forrester from Big Switch Networks, thank you for coming on the show today. And uh, folks can go to bigswitch.com if you're listening to this and want to find out more about Big Switch, uh, Big Cloud Fabric, and Big Monitoring Fabric, etc. And you can also do a lot of hands-on stuff at labs.bigswitch.com. Kind of get a feel for the products at what they do and how they work. Now, Kyle, if folks want to follow you, are you active on social media or is there any way that people can keep up with you? I'm most active on LinkedIn. Very good. So we'll have the link to uh, Kyle's LinkedIn page 
And uh, all the other links and some product-specific pages will all be in the show notes. So if you have your phone and you're listening to this podcast right now, if you look at the show notes there, you should be able to click right through and find out more information. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. We thank you for listening, and we especially thank our sponsor, Big Switch Networks, because without our sponsors, we cannot do what we do here at the Packet Pushers Network. You can reach Ethan, that's me, at EC Banks, or check out my About page at EthanCBanks.com. Enjoy a virtual donut with Drew on the Network Break Podcast and tweet at Drew underscore CM to get his attention. And don't forget to read his industry analysis at PacketPushers.net. For more of our Data Nut shows about infrastructure engineering, park your spacecraft a safe number of light years away while disaster area plays the Data Nuts intergalactically loud at PacketPushers.net. Until then, may your server lights blink, your network be cloud first, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank you.